Good morning. That's an amazing story. And there's this crazy verse in Romans 8 that says, God works all things to the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. And I think that verse embodies Ian Hastie's story. It's amazing. His story is just amazing. I've, I've known Ian since the day he was born. Uh, my wife and I have been friends with his parents, Glenn and Colleen Hasty, uh, for I don't know what, the last 22, 23, 24 years. And um, the day that they rushed to the hospital uh, to, to find out what was going on with their son, I rushed to the hospital too. And we sat together in that waiting room at Penn for hours, talking and worrying and praying. And it was so amazing to watch Glenn and Colleen trust, choose to trust in God's promises moment by moment by moment into the wee hours of Christmas Eve. It was a powerful time. And, And so I had a chance this week to have a cup of coffee with Ian, and maybe it's a miracle cup of coffee, right? It's probably the kid could be dead. Um, And we had this chance to sit and talk, and I was amazed at how Ian's life lines up with the book of Ephesians, right? The whole idea of being in Christ, it's an amazing backdrop for our series right now. And so Pastor Marty's word for us for the year is develop, right? We all know this. And so the word is develop, and if I could sum up the series in one sentence, it would be this. In Christ, we develop true life. We find life and we develop it in Christ. And so just a quick review. So this whole letter to the Ephesians is God's eternal plan to complete and establish his body, right? The church and not the building, not the seats, what's in the seats. You, me, we are the church. The term in Christ is used 17 times in the first two chapters alone, right? The understanding that we have true life in Christ. That is where we find everything and our true purpose is all found in Christ. So this guy, Paul, he's been given the task of being the teacher of the Gentiles, right? And so Gentiles is just uh, a term that we get, the, the Greek is ethnos, and we get the word ethnic from, right? And it's simply a pagan, a pagan foreign nation or people, right? And so he writes this letter to the church at Ephesus. And so Ephesus is, a, is now, it doesn't exist now, but it was on the west coast of modern-day Greece, right? And so Paul spent two years there, and so he's writing this letter to them. And as we'll see in a moment, he's a prisoner writing this letter. And he's most likely a prisoner in Rome. And he's writing this about 30 years after Jesus died on the cross. Okay, it gives us a context. And so we're going to look at the first 13 verses of chapter 3. So it comes as this odd little parentheses in between two major thoughts of Paul. And so we'll look at it in a second. But the first thought is that we comprehend this incalculable power that we have in Christ. It was the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead, and it is available to us, and he wants us to comprehend that. And then after this statement, starting in verse 14, it's the idea that Paul wants us to be strengthened by that power, right? So he wants us to comprehend it, then he takes a little break and says a few words, and then he wants to make sure that we're strengthened by the Holy Spirit in Christ, right? So that's, that's the deal. And if there's a main concept today, it's that God's mystery will be revealed, and it will be revealed through us, right? So that's the deal. So I want to pray, 
And then we'll read the, uh, the 13 verses, and um, then we'll move on, all right? So let me pray. God, you are good, and you endure forever. Lord, you show yourself to us in the power of your gospel. Lord, you show us yourself through Christ. Lord, you allow us to be in you and move and have our being in you, and we thank you for that. And so today, God, as we unfold your word, we pray that it would be unfolded with your power. Lord, help us to comprehend it and help us to be strengthened by it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so let me read the first three, uh, 13 verses of chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Okay? Then he starts the parentheses. Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And so we're going to talk about three different things that are revealed today. We're going to talk about the fact that prisoners are revealed and promises are revealed and purposes are revealed. And so we'll jump right into this first point. Prisoners will be revealed. And I just read the, the, the verses, so I'm not going to read them again. But in the first three verses, Paul calls himself two different things. And the first thing that he calls himself is a prisoner for Christ. And, you know, and I think about the fact that he didn't call himself the things, he didn't call himself a prisoner of the things that I would call him a prisoner of. If I were Paul, I would have said this. I would have said, I'm Paul, I'm a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner of an evil political system. I'm a prisoner of a misguided religious system. I was a prisoner of the temple guard in Jerusalem, and then they sent me to Felix, the governor of Caesarea, and I was a prisoner of his for two years. Then they put me on a ship, and it was lost at sea for 14 days, and I was a prisoner on that ship, and then it shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And from there, they shipped me to Caesar, and I was a prisoner of Caesar. I'm a prisoner of the rats in my cell, and I'm a prisoner of barely eating, and I'm a prisoner of these bars, and I'm a prisoner of these chains. If I were Paul, that's what I would have said. But he doesn't say that. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. Ian Hasty is a prisoner of Christ. 
Ian Hasty could have said, I'm a prisoner of this scar, and I'm a prisoner of this freak injury, and I'm a prisoner of a hole in my head, and I'm a prisoner of losing a month of my life in a hospital bed. I'm a prisoner of two brain surgeries. I'm a prisoner of having to leave my college and my friends that I love. But Ian doesn't say that. Ian says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. It was all over his story. He made him, I use those words, but that's what he is. And so I wonder, what about you? What are you a prisoner of? I know in a room this size, we have lots of prisoners, right? And we may have people who are literal former prisoners, and I hope we do, and you are so welcome here. But we have prisoners of other things too, right? We have prisoners of awful parents or terrible bosses. We have prisoners of terrible marriages. We have prisoners of awful spouses. We have pris- people who are here who are prisoners of pornography, prisoners of alcohol, prisoners of rage. We even have people here who are prisoners of wealth. And we're stuck in it. But we don't have to live a life like we're in prison, imprisoned by the things that have come to define us. Jesus says that we are redefined by him. We have our identity in him. So Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. Ian says, and he lives it out, I'm a prisoner of Christ. And we can do the same things. We can be prisoners of Christ. My family loves this movie called The, uh, the Night at the Museum, right? The series, Night at the Museum. And so we uh, love the second one, the sequel, Battle for the Smithsonian, where this guy, Larry Daly, uh, he comes back to, um, to care for and help protect these little wax figurines, right? So, so in the movie, all the wax figures in the museum come to life at night. And so whether they're big or giant or even tiny, right, they come back to life. And so Larry comes back to help them fight this battle, for, uh, battle against his nemesis, Kamun-Ra. And so he gets to this point at the, toward the end of the movie where uh, this guy, Owen Wilson, there he is, that's Owen Wilson, he's only this tall in the movie. And Owen Wilson gets picked up by Kamun-Ra and he gets put in a birdcage, right? He gets imprisoned in a birdcage. And so... Owen Wilson, or, or Jedediah as his name is, he gets in Larry's face as best as he could from the other side of these bars. And he says to him this. He says, that, that fancy suit you've been parading around in these last couple of years, that there's a hanging suit, all gussied up and dead inside. That ain't you. And so here you have a man behind bars who's calling out the man on the outside saying, I'm the one behind bars, but you're the one in prison. So Marty uh, loves it when we wear suits on stage, right? So, so if you see me in a suit, you know that there's a good chance I'm going to be on stage. Right? Uh, in many ways, this is a bit of a prison for me. So I thought, you know what? Let me try and dress up my prison. So, so I got some, some new blue shoes, right? I have some uh, funky striped socks on. Right? I've got the pocket square. got a new tie. I've got my tie clip anchored precisely between the third and fourth buttons, right? Where it's supposed to be, right? Tied to my shirt, like, just like I'm supposed to do. But you know what? In the end of the day, I'm only saying, well, this is my prison. I'm in it. I might as well decorate it. And I think the scariest point in our lives is when we realize that we've started to decorate our prisons. 
And so if you're here today and this talk is already starting to pressure you and you're starting to feel it and you're saying, I feel trapped and I'm angry and I'm bitter and I'm brokenhearted, I just want to tell you what was said by Jesus and about Jesus. Jesus says in Luke 4, I have come to free the captives. I have come to set the prisoners free. In Psalm 147, it says that the Lord heals the brokenhearted. Do you get this? For you who are realizing and recognizing your prison and you feel it on you, these words that Jesus has come to heal the brokenhearted and to set the captives free, it means that you are free in Christ with a true freedom. Don't miss that. The second thing that Paul calls himself is a steward of God's grace. A steward of God's grace. That means that he is actively investing what God has given him for the kingdom of God. I love the uh, parable of the talents in Matthew 25 where Jesus is sharing this story and he says an owner of a property goes away and, and the, the language there is that he goes away for a really long time and he leaves three people in charge. And so the three people that he leaves in charge, he gives to them exorbitant amounts of money. He gives them five talents, two talents, and one talent. We might think, well, five's not many, two's not many, one's not many. But a talent is 20 years wages. So if you make 50 grand a year, that's a million dollars. So he gives a guy five million, two million, a million dollars. And then he comes back just to check on them. And he says, wow, you had five and you doubled it? Well done. You had two and you doubled it? Well done. How about you who had one? And the guy who had one comes to him and he says, here, here's your one back. Here's your, here's your one talent back. And he says, what? You didn't even put it in the bank so you could earn interest? Are you kidding me? You are a terrible steward of what I gave you. You didn't take any risk at all. Why would you not risk this? It's not your money. You have nothing to lose. And so I wonder for us as we sit here, are we investing our talents well or are we burying them in our prisons? I want to tell you a story about my, my friend Jim Horner. Uh, and before I do, I just want to set it up because there's two pieces of information you need to know. Uh, three pieces. Wait. One, uh, Jim is a football coach. He's 80 years old. He's a football coach, and he's been a football coach. He might be a, have been a football coach since before football was invented, right? <laughs> he's been around for a long time, and he's been coaching. He's still coaching, right? So that's one piece of information. Two, we have uh, a lot of things, right? I'm the men's pastor. We have a lot of things here for men in this church. And so I just want to tell you about two of them because it sets up this story. One is our Catalyst 33 and Timothy process, right? So it's a three-year chunk of your life where you can come in as a stranger with the same group of guys and the same leader, and you leave three years later being trained up and moved, and you leave as brothers, right? It's a powerful moment. We've had hundreds of guys go through this. It starts again in the fall, right? So that's one thing. The next thing is we have a, a program called Men of Iron, and Men of Iron is a mentoring program where you spend a year with a man who is ahead of you spiritually, one year, and his whole goal is to mentor you in the gospel and in life, okay? So put that aside. So Jim Horner, I had this privilege of having this conversation with him. He's 80 years old now. He came to me two years ago, and he said, Eric, 
I want to tell you my 10-year plan. Man's 78, he has a 10-year plan. And he said, here's what I want to do. If God allows it, what I would like to do is to take three more groups through the Catalyst and Timothy process. He's already taken two groups through. I want to take three more. They're three years apiece. I want to take three more, and I want to mentor ten more men and men of iron. And if God wills it, that'll allow me to finish my life having impacted and influenced the lives of 30 to 40 more men. Man, it was a humbling and powerful story. And here's the thing that I'm learning from Coach. If I have breath in my lungs, I need to use it as a steward of God's grace and a steward of God's influence for Christ. So I'm middle-aged, right? I'm 46 years old. I'll just declare that middle-aged. Do you know what people younger than me need? They need people older than me to speak into their lives. Those of you who are older, right? Coach, he's 80 years old. It's old, right? No offense. No offense, coach. But it's old, right? Do you know the value of someone who is old in our church? The wisdom, the gifts, the understanding, the knowledge, the experience of what you have that you can speak into the younger generation and help the younger generation move forward. You are so very valuable to moving the gospel forward in this church and in the lives of the people around you. It's incredible. But imagine, or not but, and imagine if Coach had started this process when he was 16 instead of 78. I know he wishes he had. Can you imagine the impact that he would have had, the exponential amount? So I just want to talk to those of you who are in here who are younger, right? Middle schoolers, high schoolers, post-high school but still young adults, right? You're in college or you're working, whatever it is. You are so valuable to the kingdom of God. And I want to take some pressure off you for a moment. I want to put it right back on. You are not being called to impact the future of the church. Okay? You're not being called to impact the future of the church. You are being called to impact the now of the church. Do you get that? The impact, the now of the church. And so I'll just challenge you. The reason that you're so valuable, the reason that your young faith is so important is that if you start investing in the kingdom of God now, you will have and see exponential growth across your life. So don't wait. Don't wait until you graduate high school. Don't wait until you graduate college. Don't wait until you get your first job. Don't wait until you get married or have your first kid or your first house. Don't wait. The people around you cannot afford for you to wait. Point two. Promises will be revealed. We'll pick it up in verse four. Paul says, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Have you ever noticed we live a completely demystified life? And when I was growing up, we had shows like 
the unknown cosmos or undersea mysteries, but now everything is known, right? We have more answers than we even have questions. Siri and Alexa are our new best friends, and Google it is how we prove our genius, right? That's just how that we work. And, and we know more than we did, right? Science has definitely moved forward and we know more. But beyond that, there's this pervasive concept that we're really close to knowing everything. And we carry ourselves with a certain arrogance. And I offer this, by knowing more, we may actually know far less. And there's so much mystery around us. Science is still a mystery, even though you talk to a scientist and he'll say, no, no, we know everything. Well, you just... You want to prove that science is a mystery? Just keep asking how and why. And every single scientist will get to a point where he says, I don't know. That's just a mystery. Just keep going back. Fusion, I, I don't really know. We, haven't, we don't understand that yet. The Big Bang Theory. Well, how do you get something out of nothing? I don't know. It's a mystery. Prayer is a mystery. In our short-sightedness, sometimes prayer gets answered, sometimes it doesn't. At least that's what we think. God dying on the cross as Jesus Christ is a mystery. His resurrection is a mystery. God's promises are a mystery, but they all have an answer. God's Word is the answer. Ian's prayer that he prayed on December 23rd was a mystery. God communicate the gospel to me? And God chooses to answer that prayer through an aneurysm of a 21-year-old college student? And then we get to see how Jesus works in his life and we get to share the gospel through it? Man, that's a mystery, but God is being revealed. It's amazing. The answer is in Christ. Remember from point one, we are free in Christ and we have a new identity in Christ. So you want a mystery? How about this one? How is a terrible criminal who gets arrested and charged for his crimes that are so heinous that they strap a cross on his back and they make him walk through the streets of Jerusalem on the way of suffering, on the way to Golgotha, and he gets propped up and nailed to a vertical piece and he gets dropped into a hole and he happens to be on that day next to this one that they call the King of the Jews. And that day, this man who lived a heinous life has the Messiah say to him, Today you will be with me in paradise. That's a mystery. But how about the man who does all the right things in church and grows up and he follows all the rules, but he never has a true relationship with Jesus? And he doesn't end up in the same place in paradise? I'll tell you the difference. It's this. The man on the cross was no longer a prisoner of the cross. He had new life in Christ. And the man who doesn't have the relationship with Jesus is still buried behind his bars. Because it's not based on what you do. Don't miss this. It's not based on your works. We just learned that, right? Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's not based on what you do so that no one can boast. It's based on the grace of God. It's who depends on the promises. That's the key to your life, depending on God's promises of the gospel in Christ. 
So beyond the mystery that the gospel is for the Gentile, the mystery, the deeper mystery, is that it's for any of us. Deuteronomy 7 says, God says that he chose Israel not because it was the greatest of the nations, but because it was the least. And so God chooses Abraham and he says to Abraham, I'm going to make a covenant with you, a promise with you. And you will be my people and I'll be your God. And he renews that covenant through Jacob, through Isaac, through Jacob, through Joseph, through Moses, through David. And then he forms a new covenant with Jesus, right? A new covenant, a new promise. Remember communion. Jesus says, I am the one. This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this in remembrance of me, right? Every time you drink it. That's what he says. That's the new promise. Paul understood this, and he understood the mystery of being chosen, right? He gets this. He calls himself the least of the saints because he made it his life calling to persecute Christians. So we stand by a water cooler and have somebody make a snide remark about us being a Christian, and we call that persecution, but Paul understood persecution. He had letters of authority from the ruling parties that said, you can go and do whatever you need to do to suppress the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so they called this people who followed him the way. And so Paul had the privilege and the right to go into your house in the middle of the night and drag you out in chains in front of your wife and kids and throw you in a prison that maybe you would never leave. And Paul was the guy who would watch your coat and your cloak and your robe at his feet while you went and stoned Christians to death because they followed this man they called the Messiah. That was Paul. So he understood the idea of being chosen and the fact that it was a mystery. But as Paul headed out on this road to Damascus, God did what he always does. He revealed himself to those he loves. And so God blinds Paul in such a way that all he can see is Jesus. And for three days, he sees nothing. And then the scales fall off his eyes, and he says, I need Jesus, right? The same thing that we all say. It's a giant mystery for him. God chose me. I don't know why. I don't deserve it, and I couldn't earn this. So for Paul, as a Jew, the the great mystery is that the gospel is for the Gentiles also. So I'm guessing that the vast majority of us us here aren't Jewish, right? So that alone makes us Gentiles. And so when we look at verse 8, and it says that the gospel is for the Gentiles, we should rejoice in that for the rest of our lives, even for the rest of eternity. The mystery is that God chose Israel as the least of the nations, right? The mystery is that God chose to send his son on the cross as the promised Messiah, and not just for Israel, but for those of us who are unclean people. The mystery is that he chose Paul as the messenger, and the mystery is that out of all the people and all the sin, God chose you and he chose me. It's so reckless. God's love for us is such a reckless love. So sit in that for a second. God chose you. So let me offend you just for a second. There's nothing that you can do 
no best action that will ever be good enough. Your life, your past, your future, it's all a mess. And it's a mess that even though it's out of vogue, it's still a mess. And that mess we call sin. And for us, we need to ask the question, why? Why would you choose us? And it's all over the gospel. And the answer to that question is really easy. Because he loves us. Because he loves you. Because he loves me. That is why he chose us. And he chose us for a purpose. So take a look at point number three where our purposes will be revealed. In verse 8, he says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the gospel the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. So if you've ever wondered what the purpose of the church is, what the purpose of the body of Christ is, it's right there in verse 9. It's to bring light for everyone. And so uh, we're going to wrap up. This, I want to wrap up this way. We have uh, a purpose, and that's what, this is what it is. It's to bring light to the least, to bring light to the lost, and to bring light without losing hope. And so Jesus says, Even as you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. And so we might think, well... The society that Paul lived in or the society that Jesus lived in, it's so different, and our least is different. It's really not. The least are still the same. They're the ones who are poor. They're the widows. They're the orphans. They're the ones who have uh, special needs, who are adults with special needs or kids with special needs. They're the ones who can't help themselves. That's the least. And I love what you as a church do for the least here. The way that you care for them, and you have soup kitchens in Camden and Philadelphia. I even know a guy, a couple guys that I've gone and watched this. I've seen it with my own eyes. They go into Camden, and they are feeding people, and somebody comes through the line, and they don't have shoes. So you know what they do? They take off their shoes, and they say, here. Another guy came through without a shirt on. Here's my shirt. And they're literally serving soup to these men and women in Camden without shoes and shirts on because somebody else didn't have them. That's what you do. And I love the way that you go overseas to care for the least and the lost overseas, right? Some of you are called overseas, and that's great. And some of you are called regionally, and that's great. And some of you are called locally, and that's great. I love what happens in our care center. There's so many amazing volunteers, and that care center is run by this amazing woman named Ann Smith who just cares for the least and the lost right here. It's powerful what happens. I love the way that, that you have partnered with Urban Promise and you've partnered with Seeds of Hope Ministries, and you go into Camden, and you care for prostitutes and men coming out of prison, and you care for the youth of Camden, and you impact their lives. And I, I love what's happening with this book drive, right? Pastor Suresh Thomas is doing an amazing job helping us care for the least and the lost, even through books, 
And we have received hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of books from you that we get to partner with and give to students in the Mount Holly school system who don't have books. It's amazing, but let me let you in on a little secret. They need more than books. They need women to sit beside them. They need men to show them the way. They need high school students to mentor them and tutor them and be their friend. They need us to show them the light. So not just are we called to care for the least, but we're called also to bring the light to the lost. And so the lost are the people who keep looking for God to fill this void in their lives. We're living in such a powerful spiritual age, right? Everyone's looking for something, and it's, and it's like trying to trap the sun by stepping on a shadow. People are just pursuing facsimiles of God. But the good thing about the lost, even though they're trying to be found in all the wrong places, is that the lost are right around where you are. They're right there. And so, men, the lost are in your offices and, and on your job sites, and they're in your gym, and they're on the school field. Uh, they're on the sports field where your kids are playing. And ladies, they're at your jobs, and they're in your favorite stores, and they're in your neighborhoods. And middle school students, they're at your locker, and they're in the hallway, and they're on your school bus. And high school students, they are in study hall, and they're in the parking lot, and they're on your sports teams. College students, they're at Starbucks and they're in your dorms. Young adults, they're in your budding career. Seniors, they're on your walks. They're in your neighborhood. They're at your Mahjong table. They are all around us. And so we have this incredible opportunity to always see the lost. And we just need to be faithful to look for them. And then lastly, we need to bring the light without losing heart. And so we may look at this and say, it'll cost too much. I can't do that. But remember the parable of the talents? You're spending someone else's riches. It's not ours. Verse 8 says that Jesus' riches are unsearchable. They're so vast that they are never-ending. The word there is unfathomable. There's no beginning or end in sight. And it's a promise that we will not incur a debt beyond what Jesus has already paid. You get that? We will not incur a debt beyond what Jesus has already paid. And it means that we can afford this venture. And Jesus gave himself away and we need to give ourselves away. So as I was preparing this week, I I really felt that we needed to have some moment to just kind of pause and reflect. So I asked uh, Pastor Doug to bring the team out and and just lead us in a song that I heard in Israel. So they're going to sing to us in Hebrew. Uh, Just kidding, they're not. (laughs) So I was on this trip uh, a couple of months ago, and we got to go to... Israel, and we spent two weeks touring. There were 30 of us or so from here at FAC, and we got to spend two weeks touring. And the last part of our tour was on the Sea of Galilee in that region. And as we roamed and drove around all these hills and this beautiful basin and this gorgeous lake, there were shepherds all over the hillside. And our instructor was just so faithful to explain the purpose of a shepherd, and and he tied it into the parable of 
the, the shepherd who goes out and he leaves the 99 and he goes out after the one sheep and he fights until that one sheep is found. And we're that one sheep. And he's just saying that is the value that Jesus sees in us as the individual. So I had this time. I, I still needed on this trip, we had a couple days left and I still needed to get one gift for my kids. I've got four kids. I was missing one. So I asked them to drop me off at a local mall, which is about a mile and a half away from where we were staying. We were staying right on the edge of the Sea of Galilee. And it happened to be the Sabbath that night. And so all the stores were closed. So I just went, all the stores were closed, and I just started my hike home. But I heard this song going on, and I thought, boy, I've heard that song on the radio. Somebody must really have their radio really loud. And I got a little closer to, to the sea, and I realized that it was a concert. And I realized that it was Corey Asbury singing this song at a Hillsong concert right on the Sea of Galilee. And it was this amazing place. And I recognized we're singing this, they're singing the song, and I'm walking along the sidewalk, and the sun is setting, and there's hardly a cloud in the sky, and it's this beautiful image. And we're, they're singing about the Messiah in the land where the Messiah walked. And I could see the town where Jesus lived off in the distance, and it was this amazing time of worship, walking along traffic, standing on a sidewalk, walking back to our hotel. And God just convicted me in that moment because I was worshiping him deeply. And I realized that there have been so many times that I have worshiped so poorly. We've been here in this church for 23 years. So I did the math. It's probably 1,200 services that I've sat in those seats or those seats or those seats. And I have to confess, there have been times that I have left a service and said, man, worship wasn't very good today. And God so convicted me in that moment of that horrible comment. Because worship isn't for me. Worship is for God. And I wonder how many times out of the last 1,200 services that God said to me, or God said after I left the service, man, Eric's worship wasn't very good today. And I don't ever want that to be the case for me again, and I don't ever want that to be the case for you again. And so they're going to lead us in this song, but I want to just read a lyric or two so that you can understand it, because these lyrics have been all over this talk, and I don't want you to miss them. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. It chases me down. It fights till I'm found. It leaves the 99. And I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. And still you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. I don't know where you are spiritually today. I don't know if you're a prisoner in your decorated prison and you're recognizing the desire to be free in Christ and declare yourself a prisoner of Him. I don't know if you're hearing the promises for the very first time and you want to claim them for yourself. And I don't know if you're young or middle-aged or old and you're recognizing that you can grab onto the purpose that God has called you for. But this is what I know. God loves you and he chose you and you are called to reveal the mysteries to the world. 
So as we worship, let this be a time where you pour out your worship and you recognize who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross. And don't miss this opportunity.